0: Hello, and welcome to episode 127 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we have an in-depth interview with our special guest, Paul Zimniski. I reached him in the New York City area. He's an independent diamond analyst and consultant. He calls 2018 the year of the lab-created diamond. So we're going to have an in-depth conversation about lab-created diamonds what, what's happening with the prices and the production levels and what that all means for the natural diamond mining industry. He's also an investor in uh, diamond mining stocks, so we'll talk about that as well. Now, this podcast is sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca. They also have an excellent Twitter feed at, at investyukon, all one word. If you go to their website, you can also sign up for a newsletter and alerts. But first, we have a couple of sponsored content segments. For the next month, we're going to have Cobalt 27 Capital, a series of Mining Minutes, we call them. These are sponsored segments. And this week, we have Anthony Milewski. He is the founder and CEO of Cobalt 27 Capital. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Cobalt market and Cobalt 27 And then we will continue with the sixth in our series of what we call Sponsor Spotlights. These are brief profiles of the major sponsors of our Progressive Mind Forum that we held in Toronto last month. This week, we have Terry McKeague, M-C-K-A-G-U-E. He's the Director of Sales for North America and International at BTI Breaker Technology. So he'll talk about BTI. And once again, we have this theme of remote operations. So... They're also using uh, remote technology for their breaker technology. We'll start with the what we call Mining Minute with Cobalt 27 and Anthony, and then move on to the sponsor spotlight with BTI and Terry, and then come back with the full-length interview with Paul. If you could just explain the relation between the electric vehicle revolution and cobalt demand and prices?
1: We're really at the beginning of what is a transformational change in both energy markets and automobile markets. And at the heart of that change is the lithium-ion battery, which is powering the revolution. That's powering electric vehicles and is a large component of grid storage. And that lithium-ion battery should really be called a nickel-cobalt battery because the heart of that battery is the chemistry, which globally is a nickel manganese cobalt chemistry, or in the case of Tesla, a nickel cobalt alumina chemistry. And the key metals inside of that battery are nickel and cobalt. What you see in those two metals is, you know, one energy density and two stability in in the batteries. And cobalt, in particular, is critical to the battery chemistries and the lithium ion batteries we know it as the metal that really helps stabilize the battery and, you know, in part, keep it from catching on fire.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, how have you structured uh, Cobalt 27 Capital to take advantage of the uh, EV revolution and cobalt demand rising?
1: So when, you know, we think about investing in basic materials and thematic investing, you know, we wanted to put together a vehicle that could capitalize on the adoption of the electric vehicle. And later on, as as it's just starting really the, the grid storage revolution which is kind of just beginning now whereas the ev adoption has already really picked up you know we thought about copper nickel cobalt lithium for different reasons you know for instance copper a great metal you know at some point five to ten percent of copper demand will be will be consumed for electric vehicles but you know it's a big liquid metal that has a lot of drivers and is a proxy for gdp but when we got to cobalt what we realized was that today 50% of all cobalt is used in batteries in some form. And if in say 2025, 15% of new vehicles sold are electric, globally, you know, you're talking about needing something like 250,000 metric tons of cobalt when the entire market is 100,000 metric tons today. So what we saw in cobalt was really a great proxy for the adoption of electric vehicles.
2: I'm Terry McCaig, and I currently am the uh, Director of Sales for Breaker Technology, BTI, located in Thornbury, Ontario, Canada. Breaker Technology uh, has been in business for over 60 years, but in the last 40 years, we've uh, specialized on breaking rock. So we build or manufacture rock breakers. It's to work in the underground or surface applications. In addition to rock breakers, we do a complete line of underground mobile equipment. And in particular, we've kind of uh, specialized in scalers. So in 1981, we built what we think is the first mechanized scaler, and we took it down to Peru and, of course, sold quite a few in Peru. One thing that breaker technology has always done is they've always listened to their customers. But in the last five years, we've heard a lot of uh, the mines want to keep the operators out of the mine. So about half of our rock breaker systems working underground, are currently being operated from people on surface. It really uh, increases productivity, but it also helps the mine with their safety record. And I think it's going to lead to other machines, of course, uh, all the production machines trying to be ran by operators, not in the mine, but on, up on surface. Initially, all the mines asked to have the, the operator still positioned on the mine site property, running these equipment underground, But now the trend is, if the mine site is in a very remote and hard area to get to and from every day, um, they're trying to bring this now 100, 300 kilometers away to a neighboring city where the people live. And what's interesting about that concept is now you have mine operators who can live and work in a, in, a, in a small community but run the equipment that is several hundred kilometers away. I think in the future what's going to happen is the mines that are in very remote areas of Canada, for example, in the high Arctic, you could have a lot of your operators operating from, say, right here in Toronto. The thing that helps us is we design our equipment so that it can integrate with other equipment in the mine and it can actually communicate with the mine's own software. And we, we, we encourage that, we like that. We, we don't have our own proprietary system where we won't don't want to plug into anything else. Because the mine, uh, they want uh, data. They want to know the machine health. What's what's going through the ore pass at that time? What the machine is doing production-wise, but also it may want to talk to other equipment. As the scoop approaches the grizzly, the the rock breaker will automatically get out of the road, so it will not slow down production. So, this is the kind of uh, future of. Um, of the automation and then eventually we would like to work in an area uh, where we are totally autonomous operation so this would then work with camera technology we figure to uh, take a picture of the object which the rock breaker is to break and it would send a signal to the rock breaker to go in and commence breaking now we're still a few years away from that but we're working towards
0: that And now let's move on with our feature interview with Paul Zimniski. i reached Paul in the New York City area via Skype, and we go into quite a bit of detail about lab-created diamonds. So we'll join Paul right after this musical break. With Paul Zemniski. He's joining me from the New York area here. He is an independent diamond analyst and consultant. Paul was sort of our sleeper star of our first annual diamond symposium in uh, Toronto six months ago. And it was a very interesting, uh, sort of positive outlook on the diamond mining industry. And we turned that into episode 109. But first off, uh, Paul, how are you doing?
3: Very good. Thanks for having me, John.
0: Yeah. So I found that very interesting when we had that diamond symposium. And thanks so much for coming. It was just a couple days after De Beers unveiled their light box initiative. So I found that like a momentous moment in uh, the diamond industry. Could you just explain, first off, if people don't know what that is, what what that is, and then what happened in the last six months?
3: So we're talking about lab-created diamonds here, and... I guess just kind of set the stage and get some context. You know, you know, typically you'd call it synthetic diamond, which is used for industrial abrasive purposes. It's, it's used by the oil and gas industry, the mining industry. Yes. You know, that technology's been around for, you know, 50, 60 years. And the large majority of industrial quality diamond comes from sy- synthetic production. It's, you know, 99, 98%. Almost all of it's produced in China. Right. Um, and to try to quantify that, we're talking... 10 billion carats of synthetic diamond produced year for industrial purposes. And there's, say, 150 million carats of natural diamond produced. And of that 150 million, only about 60 million is actually gem quality, good enough quality for, for use in jewelry. So those are the kind of numbers we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like within the last five years, the industry saw the first one carat polished lab-created diamond that's jewelry quality. Um, and that's kind of a result of the technology that, uh, that, that they're using to create the higher quality lab diamonds.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, that, that's kind of really come a long way the last few years. So we went from saying, you know, the first one carat you know, lab created polish five years ago. Now we're saying 10, 20 carat, you wow. know, very large lab created uh, diamonds. Right. Um, and the technology is getting better and better. The economics to produce them are getting better. Um, there's more and more you know money entering the space. There's more new entrants, new new producers, new distribution channels. And, and I would say, I like in, in 2018, it's kind of really, really come together where the interest and the talk in the the lab-created segment of the industry has, has really exploded this year. And it's not just that the producers and the distribution channels, but also the media is, you know, taking significant interest. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, there's investors in a, in the private equity space, for example, that are curious and taking interest. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's fair to say that for the diamond industry, 2018 has has uh, certainly been the year of the lab-created diamond. So it's, a, it's certainly, the, I think, the most talked about area in the industry. And then you had Beers the Beers enter the lab-created diamond jewelry space for the first time, which was uh, you know, a, a, a big deal for the industry. And we saw that in the spring, and then the, the product was actually launched in late September. So we're still kind of at, at the early stages of the, the, the more scalable side of this industry, but it's, it, it's certainly generating a lot of attention, a lot of, a lot of interest in the space.
0: Right, and just for some of the terminology, when people talk about lab-created diamonds, are those specifically the the gem ones being sold for retail, and then synthetic is all kinds of industrial and precious? Whatever, whatever, yeah, that? It's, it's, is that kind of, it's kind of it's kind of
3: funny them? that yeah, it's kind of funny that you bring that up because there's actually a lot of contention, you know, around the vernacular used to describe this, and the natural diamond industry wants them called synthetics,
4: because it's uh-huh. almost
3: like kind of a up to when you're talking about a luxury item, and then. The lab-created industry prefers them to be called, you know, artisan diamonds, or um, they would they would prefer lab-created or lab-grown over synthetic. But typically, I guess in the context that I'm using, I talk about synthetic diamonds. Typically, talking about abrasive quality diamonds, and when I talk about lab-created, I'm I'm talking about diamonds produced for for use in jewelry.
0: Right. Right. And maybe I could just pause for a second and let people know you wrote this terrific uh, summary called 2018, the year of the lab-created diamond, and it's on your website at paulzimnisky.com, uh, P-A-U-L-Z-I-M-N-I-S-K-Y. And uh, I highly recommend this for anyone involved in the diamond, diamond industry just to get caught up. And I've taken this photo you have of the uh, comparing the lab-created diamonds with natural and showed it to quite a few people, and almost all the people picked... The synthetic as the real diamonds, and, prefer, and prefer Very interesting. because they were clear. Very interesting. I think. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. so, yeah. That's, that's, I try to take an example of two high quality, and of course you're going to have all different kind of grades and qualities. But in that particular, uh, yeah. that that particular image, I try to take two, yeah. you know, higher quality examples of both lab created and, and natural.
0: Right. So maybe if we could just talk a little bit about the production of these lab-created diamonds, sort of the traditional. Thing think probably everyone's aware of the last few decades, high pressure, high temperature, and that has a certain limit uh, of size you can get, but now there's this new or relatively new chemical vapor deposition, and this is the thing that's really allowed people to create these huge diamonds. Is that sort of the way to characterize what's happened?
3: Yeah, I, so I guess technically you could produce large diamonds with HPHC and CVD, but, you know, in the last few years when we've really seen the rise in the larger, higher quality lab diamonds, it's... Primarily been the, the CVD technology, and and what's interesting is the that technology was primarily developed by the um, by the solar industry. They use it to produce polysilicon for solar panels. It's right, also right, been used yes. by the LED light bulb industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are you know larger industries, and and they were able to generate more cash to really develop that production technology. And it's just been again within the last two years the diamond industry kind of adopted that and started using it to produce diamonds. Right. But the point is, I you know that technology was already you know, advance of the last couple of decades. So the kind of diamond industry is kind of jumping on board, you know, later stage and it's, you know, able to leverage that previous R&D that's been spent. And I think that's why you're seeing the production technologies uh, improve so rapidly. So, you know, you kind of have, when you look at current lab diamond production for use in jewelry, you kind of have a bunch of small private startups in West. You have some in the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's a big one in California. There's a big one in Washington, D.C., And then you have some in Israel, you have some in Europe as well. And then when you you have the other big kind of forces, the Chinese producers, using the the high pressure, high temperature technique. And those were, you know, historically the producers that produced the industrial grade uh, synthetic. But in in recent years, they've been improving their technologies. And now they're able to produce near gem and gem quality diamonds, albeit they tend to be the smaller size rough. Um, but the, the point is, the industry is seeing a you know significant you know influx of new supply, and it's from the, the startups in the West using CVD, but it's also the, the Chinese producers advancing their production technologies. And again, in most you know I would say all of these are, are, are private companies, They tend to be smaller private companies. Mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot of transparency. It's really really hard to gauge the actual supply. And then again, you have the different categories of quality. So it really is kind of hard to get a handle on how much supply is really out there. But I think there's a lot more of the smaller near gem and, and the smaller gem supply because it's coming from China than the, the larger gem quality that's coming from the startups, which tend to be relatively smaller.
0: Right. Now we should also mention uh, we, had, we had De Beers with their light box uh, announcing it at least in June and then um, launching it as an online uh, platform only. And then you have the uh, jewelry manufacturer Richline, I believe is linked to Berkshire Hathaway, and uh, in the fall or in October or so, uh, they've entered the scene. Could you just explain what's happened with Richline and their different sales strategy, that kind of thing?
3: Yeah, so I think they're, they're kind of two completely different approaches. You look at what De Beers is doing with Lightbox. It's, I don't think De Beers wants to be in the lab-created diamond jewelry business. I think they're kind of in it for strategic reasons. They want mm-hmm. to really kind of take control of, of the, the, the. I think, the the communication as, as to what the industry is and what direction it's going And they want to try to take control of the the, the consumer perception of lab-created diamonds. And and they want that to be, you know, one of a product that's inferior to natural and a a completely different segmented product uh, from a natural one that's going to be, you know, under a $1,000 price point. It's going to be more in the, what, you know, we would call the fashion jewelry industry, not the fine jewelry industry. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at what Richline, they're, you know, a large jewelry manufacturer here in the U.S. and they're. Taking it as a as a whole new product category that, and they're trying to market it as a fine piece of jewelry. Yes. So De Beers is selling the, their one carat for eight hundred dollars, and, and you know Richline through this new label called Born With Love, they're selling uh, one carat for you know thirty seven hundred dollars, wow. which is it's, it's probably approximately you know somewhere between twenty and, and, and thirty, maybe forty percent lower than an equivalent natural, depending on the, the category we're looking at, but right. significant difference in, in in you know the pricing strategy here. And it's going to, I mean, ultimately come down to, I think, who could, you know, I, I guess as far as the players that are trying to market the lab created as a as a, a higher price alternative, you know, as, as an alternative to a natural, that's going to be maybe a, a, a slight discount to a natural, but not a significant discount. Like the box, it's going to, I think, really come down to how well they market and, and brand that product and sell it to uh, consumers. And I think that's going to kind of be the, the, the tricky part. I think it's, it's a lot harder, say, also to, to sell a, a lab-created than a natural, right? Um, you know, I, I think there's there's certainly some features. You know, that the price differential is certainly I think a positive feature if you're trying to sell lab-created and have the, uh, I think you kind of market the environmental and, and the ethical aspects, mm-hmm. uh, and you can kind of steer that in, 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 a, in, in a way that makes it look superior to a natural. But at the end of the day, I think the price point is really what's going to matter, and I think getting below that one thousand dollar price point for one carat is kind of the the key kind of the key level i think where you could really generate substantial demand for what i think a lot of people would perceive as you know a product that is inferior to a natural because it doesn't have that intrinsic value it doesn't have that intrinsic rarity so i think that's going to kind of be the tricky part and i don't know if with that rich line doing i don't know if they maybe have to have the marketing and, and the brand behind it right yet but there are some retailers that are having success with with the lab created um and i, I think the, the key to this is you, you tend to be selling for to a customer that's probably going to be a, in, in a younger you know say millennial demographic and mm-hmm. you know that customer wants an experience and I think you could sell them a material luxury item like a lab created diamond at a multi thousand dollar price point if you really give them a great uh, you know customer experience and it yes. seems as if you know the, the just the handful of retailers that seem to be having initial success selling these items at the higher price point are the you know the companies that are are, are really providing that A plus customer service experience, and I think that you know that customer is willing to spend you know relatively more for, for the the lab created you know compared to the natural, given the, that a lab created essentially has no in, intrinsic value, and in a in a natural while it doesn't have a high resale price point. You're going to still probably get somewhere between forty to sixty percent back if you wanted to resell it or pawn it or something like that. Right. Now, now um, so I think that's kind of kind of what's going on.
0: Yeah. Now you've walked up to. Uh... Uh, rich line, grown with love, uh, set of diamonds at a at a JC Did did it look compelling to you? Did did they sparkle as much as the other um, cabinets?
3: <laughs> yeah. So it's it, so it's it's still so chemically diamond. Um, it looks a, a natural and and a, a lot it's, it's indistinguishable with with the naked eye. I mean, you need special equipment to distinguish. I mean, I think it's important to understand that you can distinguish between the two with certainty. But you need the special equipment to do that. Yes. So I think that's kind of the that's the important caveat to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, again, I, I think from a from a customer value standpoint, again, I think it's it's going to be hard for some customers that are spending. Again, it could be you know five, ten, you know. So that that one with LoveLine, they have a, a, a two-carat uh, diamond and they're selling it for you know over ten thousand dollars. So wow. I think when you get into that price point, I think it's going to be kind of I, I think it's going to be kind of challenging, you know, to sell that item, given that the, the customer knows, you're, you know, there may not be any resale value to that item. Um, and at least if they buy a natural, there's, a, again, some there's, there's an inherent rarity uh, there, especially when you get to the larger sizes. So I think, again, I think the sweet spot's going to be in, you know, that maybe that, I would say definitely below the $1,000 price point. But then when you get into the engagement ring price points, is the, the three dollars $4,000, $5,000, I think there could, you know, be, be an opportunity for some of these retailers if they sell, you know, a customer, uh, you know, a, a 1.5 carat for the price of a a one carat natural, and the right. customer sees added value in the larger yeah. diamond. But again, that's I think in that, in in that low thousand dollars price right, point. Right. But I think once you get up into that 10, 10 plus thousand dollar price point, I think it's, it's going to be you know a, a different game altogether.
0: When you get that one carat and then a thousand dollar, that's so compelling to me, and and then. I guess like a life hack, you could, you could uh, buy the De Beers pendant for eight hundred bucks or whatever it is, or nine hundred, and then just take it out and then reset it in an engagement ring or something like that, and have a one carat engagement ring for twelve hundred bucks. Yeah, or something and, I,
3: like and I don't think we we mentioned that yet, but yeah. So basically, with Lightbox, the De Beers uh, product, they basically are not selling diamonds larger than one carat, and they are not no. selling bridal products. So that, I think you made a you know a very valid point there, and it's kind of interesting to see that how many consumers will actually do that because you can. Buy that—that the you can buy. The, they're selling the one carat solitaire and a pendant, and you could buy that wow. and take it to a bench jeweler and have them put in a in, in an engagement ring setting for you for probably a couple hundred bucks or less. So, yeah. so there's there's definitely some you know a value proposition there. I don't know if if people are aware they could do that, or if they're actually going to take the initiative to do that, but uh but that's that, that's certainly a valid point.
0: Yeah, and uh it's such great bragging rights to say I have a one carat diamond. Like, there's nothing. Yeah, yeah like
3: it. it's. <laughs> Compared yeah, to point right. your
0: Yeah. So, uh, to me, it seems like inevitable. There's just going to be this flood. Like this is all going to get away from De Beers and uh, Rich Line. There's going to be this flood of high quality synthetic diamonds. It might take ten or twenty years out of China. Like to me, the whole industry could be uh, turned on its head. This could be like the Uber to the taxi industry, or Tesla to uh, GM, or something like that.
3: Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people saying that. So, you know, I guess we kind of have to look at the other side as well. And, you know, mm-hmm. historically, this industry has been very, very resilient. It kind of went through Blood Diamonds, and the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. And I guess that was, I don't know if that was the late 90s, early 2000s. Then you kind of had the, the CZ and the Moissanite, which were, they're called like diamond simulants. They're like mm-hmm. diamond equivalents, but they aren't exactly the same. But, you know, talking about, you know, an equivalent product at a, at a much lower price point and there was kind of concern that that was going to destroy the natural diamond industry and with lab created diamonds we're, we're talking about a product that is chemically diamond and it holds the same chemical properties yes. so i think it's fundamentally a greater force in that respect
4: mm-hmm.
3: but but again i think it's really important here you have to look at diamonds from the standpoint of being a luxury purchase and you know, if buying a a diamond was purely a fundamental purchase based on rationality, it would be different. And we've seen that with synthetic diamonds used in industrial application. There's, you know, most of that supply is is synthetically made because it doesn't matter as long as it's chemically the same to,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: you know, someone using it for industrial application. They don't care if it's natural or synthetic. They just want the product that's going to hold up. That's the cheapest. Um, But with jewelry, I I think it's different. It's a purchase, you know, made on, on how it makes somebody feel. And the story behind a natural diamond is, is quite compelling if used in the right context, mm-hmm. um, and I think if the natural diamond industry continues to, you know, effectively market the product the right way, I think it could, you know, persevere the, the lab-created hurdle as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things the industry is doing is they're, you know, they're reinitiating generic diamond marketing through a organization called the Diamond Producers Association, which mm-hmm. is kind of funded by all the producers. But I think this is important because this is the first time in, in ten years that. The industry now has a generic diamond campaign. Um, the Diamond is Forever campaign it kind of it kind of ended around 2008. So there was you know a 10 year period where there was no marketing, and the beers was spending 200 million dollars a year on that campaign. Wow. Yes. Um, and and again, this is a luxury item, and, and you can you know I always laugh, I and mean, you could literally throw money at the problem in this industry. It's all about marketing and branding, and yes. and and, and it, it does move the needle, and. You know, De Beers was spending $200 million a year, and they, they, they that campaign completely stopped for 10 years. So I think that's finally starting to catch up with the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this DPA, uh, you know, 2018 was the first year where they were spending the full budget. It's, you know, between 80 and $90 million. So it's not what De Beers was spending, but it's significant. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's enough to move the needle. It's going to maybe take a few years to play out, but they're targeting, you know, the, the right market. They're targeting the U.S., which represents 50% of, global diamond demand they're targeting you know and they're targeting China and India they you know the two fastest growing large players and they're they're targeting self-purchasing women and they're targeting couples that may be like partners but may not get married so I think they're they're kind of doing this the right way and I think if they if you know if they they do execute this strategy successfully I I think it will move the needle and I I really do think the natural industry can kind of persevere the lab created hurdle as well and and again if history continues to uh to play out the way it has in the past, um you know that this industry is gonna gonna make it through this, just like it made, it's made it through all the other previous challenges and, and it's just it's been a very very resilient industry it's I wouldn't bet against that track right, record's right. too good
0: yeah now, I guess our listeners should know you also published the Zimnitsky Global rough Diamond price index, and you can find that at roughdiamondindex.com. dot com and one of the features of the second half of this year is the prices of the um, smaller diamonds has really dropped you know, 10% or whatever it is. Uh, could you just explain what's happened there? Does is that link up to the, the lab-created diamonds, or is it unrelated, or what's going on? This seems to show up repeatedly in quarterly results that the, the lower-priced diamonds are falling in price.
3: Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an important thing to bring up. It's probably one of the, the more important trends in the industry right now. I think it's more a result of of oversupply of the smaller categories. Um, mm-hmm. There were, you know, three new mines that commenced production last year.
4: Yes. Um, they
3: all tend to have a product skewed towards the, the smaller goods. In addition, you've had some financing strain in, in the Indian manufacturer industry, and the companies that are most affected by that tend to be the manufacturing companies that focus and specialize in the smaller stones. So mm-hmm. they kind of have less less levers to buy inventory. So you have that going on. And then the, the lab-created piece, I think, is playing a role. I don't think it's nearly as significant as, as some would lead you to believe. Right. Again, we're you know at the very infant stages of this you know the, the lab-created jewelry thing, and uh, mm-hmm. the supply just isn't significant enough at this point to, to really significantly move the needle, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you know from a, a lab-created standpoint affecting that category of, of natural goods, I think at, at this point it, it's probably more a result of some of that synthetic Chinese production may be making its way into some of the distribution channels as, as an natural diamond. And, and that's something that the industry has been dealing with for a few years now. They've made significant progress on that front, but there could still be some supply kind of making it through in that smaller category um, that is synthetic, you know, being sold as natural. And it's probably going to get picked up uh, before it makes it all the way through the, the supply channel. But if you were going to say that lab created kind of Leading to this oversupply of smalls, I would say it's more because the undisclosed stuff more so than the the disclosed lab created. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think it's kind of an interesting thing, and, and we're you know talking about natural now and the mining companies. And a few years back, there were you know a lot of people that were really kind of bullish on the diamond industry and the diamond mining industry, and the premise that there was this imminently pending, you know, supply, demand, and balance. Mm-hmm. But, but the reality was there was, you know, a pending influx of, of new supply with the Gaucha Quay mine in Northwest Territories, Renard in mm-hmm. Quebec, the Ligabong mine in uh, Sudo. They all came online in 2017. And in addition, you had, you know, the, the two biggest producers, the beers and uh, you know Rosa, which is the, the, the large Russian company. Mm-hmm. They both had significant excess inventory that was built up in 2015. So the fundamentals really weren't that great three or four years ago, but everybody was kind of hyped about the industry.
4: Yes. And it's
3: kind of interesting because now nobody's bullish. The sentiment couldn't be worse. Yeah. And we have a situation where there actually is going to be incremental, you know, decrease in global supply over at least the next three years. Right. And in addition, the beers now rose to have sold off all that excess inventory mm-hmm. um, that, that they built up in 2015. So the fundamentals now are actually legitimately good and like, you know, I, I think I think the people that were excited a few years ago probably lost money. And, it's, you know, the, from an investor sentiment standpoint, it's, it couldn't get too so much lower than, you know, where we are right now. Right. But the fundamentals actually are, you know, shaping up.
0: Now, you follow the supply and demand, of course, but uh, you also follow the broader economic trends. Like, what is it that really stands out that as a good predictor of uh, diamond uh, prices? Like, is it just straight GDP growth in the consumer nations? or?
3: Yeah, it really is. Again, we're talking about... Uh, a luxury product here it's heavily uh, let's say geared to consumer sentiment and, and you know how much money you know how much discretionary money people have in their pocketbook so you know when you kind of run the you do the quantitative analysis it's there's a very high correlation with uh with gdp growth i would say in you know the u.s india china
4: mm-hmm.
3: and that's you know i think that's kind of the, 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 the that's probably the most important thing to watch again trying to to, to figure out what's going to happen on, on a global macro scale it doesn't get more difficult and complicated than that if you can figure that out i think you can kind of figure right. anything out yes. um i, I think we're, we're definitely shifting towards a different part of the business cycle now you see most of the developed nations are tightening monetary policy this year or they will be in the next couple of years and i think we're going to see you know at least a moderate slowing of global growth i'll be able to have positive you know gdp growth globally in the next two years right um so I think that the demand situation actually looks pretty good and I think the supply you know situation looks looks really good it takes 10 years to get a new diamond mine into production so you can kind of see what supply is going to look like 10 years into the future yes um, you know and the beers and our roast they're both now producing at capacity mm-hmm. and they've they've cut their excess inventory so I think we're in a situation where there's going to be pretty good sensitivity to prices if you see kind of demand pick up and, and I think we will see demand pick up in Q1 when the manufacturers resupply their inventories following the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, a very, very seasonal industry. And it's like, you see it almost, almost every year you see it, you see prices up in Q1 and Q2, and you see them come down in Q3 and Q4, I um, generally speaking. And I, I think we're probably going to see that again, but it's, it's kind of funny because the sentiment kind of shifts so dramatically, but it's, it's an ongoing pattern. So I think if you're an investor and you kind of watch the space, if you kind of you know maybe make some sales in, in, in Q1 and and Q one and Q two and you kind of add to your positions and in, and in Q and three uh, Q three and Q four when the when the sentiment gets bad, but the fundamental picture really hasn't changed that much.
0: Right. Um, now, you're up front about what you invest in in your uh, letters here, so I'll let me just read it out. You own shares in uh, t- terms of diamond companies, Lucara, Stornoway, Mountain Province, Diamcor, North Arrow Minerals, Sodilo Resources. Maybe you don't need to talk about your own book, but just generally what is it you like to invest in in the diamond sector? And obviously the lab-created diamonds didn't scare you off investing in mining companies.
3: Yeah, so I think, first off, there's only a, a very small share of Pure play, you know, standalone diamond mining companies globally. You have you have a handful in Canada. There's a few in, in, that are listed on London. But I, I kind of like, we'll kind of look at Mountain Province, for instance. Um, and the stock is down significantly this year. They, they commenced production last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a 4951 JV with De Beers. It's a world-class mine. It's operated by De Beers. They're cash flow positive, even though the smaller category of diamonds, which represents a significant part of their product mix is down you know upwards a 40 percent this year and that's kind of mm-hmm. why the stock is down so much mm-hmm. but the point is they're still profitable they just they paid back debt in q3 and they just actually issued a press release in late november saying that they they paid back additional debt following the, the end of the q3 period so the cash flow positive even at these prices and and again i think we're going to see a rebound in, in q1 as the manufacturers restock i think you know, they that smaller category where we have an overhang at the moment. I think you're going to start to see that, you know, that normalize a little bit. And if you do, I think you're going to see some some upward pressure in the product mix that someone like a Mountain Province is is, is selling. So, I think there's more upside than downside at this point uh, in some of these names. I think that the sentiment has has really gotten, you know, ugly. And uh, and you know, I'd even say there's there's been capitulation in the space at this point. So, right. um, so I think it's it's not a it's not a bad time to to look at some of these names
0: yeah, and maybe just one last question here before I go. Um, just the the rough diamond price forecast over the next, say, five years. Uh, I see you have a chart here rising and then kind of leveling off a bit later. What's your view there on the just the the rough diamond price forecast?
3: Yeah, so so again, I think the demand part is a lot more difficult to figure out than the supply side. for uh-huh. for demand, it's again, you've got to kind of figure out what the the global GDP situation looks like, the global growth uh, situation. The supply side, I think, is a little bit easier. Again, it takes so long to get new diamond projects in, into production that kind of have a, a, a pretty good window of five to ten years into the future. Um, and there's some you know, very large mines that are going to be closing in the next three, four years. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, it's kind of unclear. There's one mine of significance in Angola at the moment that's in development. Yes. It could be you know, very large in scale. Um, there, there's not a whole lot of information out at this point. They're, they're doing bulk sampling. They haven't even done any large diameter drilling yet, but it's, it's just the west of a river and there might be, there might be some challenges with regard to, uh, you know, the, the water, uh, and the elevation of the mine. So it's, it's kind of unclear when that will be put into production, but it's probably going to be sometime after 2022, 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of the. The, the big new supply catalyst, and again, there, there, there's kind of a, a lot of uncertainty around that. Yes. Um, but, but outside of that, there's no new large-scale commercial projects that are going to be coming online. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you have a handful of projects that are that are going to be uh, closing due to depletion. So the the next, I would next three four years, the fundamentals look pretty good, assuming that the demand holds up and the global economy holds up. So I think we're going to see, you know, upward pressure on on, on rough prices the next three, four years. And then as we get into 2022, 2023, I think we're going to have a better idea of of what that potential new supply catalyst uh, in Angola looks
0: like. Right. Sounds good. And maybe uh, just as you leave here, uh, just tell the listeners where people can find you, where they can get your writing and subscription services, that kind of thing.
3: Sure. I I think you mentioned uh, my website earlier, um, paulsanisky.com. I'm also uh, pretty active on Twitter at Zaniski And I I have my email on my website. If anybody has any questions, uh, feel free to reach out, and I'll uh, be happy to get back to you.
0: That's great. Okay, thanks very much, Paul. Thanks, John. That does it for this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, you can help out the podcast by liking the podcast, sharing it, and signing up for the podcast. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please check them out at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed, at Invest And uh, go to the website to sign up for their newsletter. So that's it. Bye-bye.